Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of The End of Sport. This is Johanna Mellis, and we are so excited for this episode that we have for you all today. Um, so in this episode, I am joined by Derek Silva, who is not here for this intro, um, sadly. Um, this was actually an episode, one of several that Nathan put together for us, but he could not be here for the actual recording. So we've had previous episodes on fandom, uh, we have we just had one on um, kind of the athlete experience and athletes perspectives on unionizing athletes rights and things like that. Um, those were both episodes with a panel of guests and not just one like we normally do. This is another one with another panel of amazing guests. This is on fandom and specifically fandom from the perspective of academics and a cultural critic and journalist who do not specialize in sport uh, specifically. They don't analyze sport from a critical perspective in their everyday work, but they are all fans and they have all thought very deeply about their fandom and they come at it from a, from a critical perspective. And um, as you all probably know from our work on Twitter, we're always interested in hearing people walk us through kind of how they perceive their sport fandom or at least their um, appreciation for sport when they know that there are all these uh, really harmful things, insidious things um, that are at the root of how our modern sport is constructed. So today, as I said, um, I'm joined by Derek Silva and our three guests. We have Amanda Mull, who is returning to us for the third time. We are so lucky to have her. Um, she is a cultural critic and a very prolific uh, writer for The Atlantic. We also have Professor Kevin Gannon, who is a professor of history at Granville University. Um, and is also a pedagogue extraordinaire. And then uh, thirdly, we have Steve Salaita, who um, is a former assistant professor and um, in, yeah, is, a, is a professor extraordinaire. And they all, like I said, they all bring really critical and fascinating perspectives to their fandom, to understanding sport. Um, this ended up being a really long episode simply because everyone had such amazing things to say and everyone was kind of bouncing ideas off one another and was such a generous conversation. And so we really cannot wait for you to listen to it. Um, if you have not already, please, please go in and rate, review, and, and like um, uh, our podcast uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, follow us on social media. Please, if you have not already, please go in and write us a review on Apple Podcasts. We have a number of reviews at this point, but because we still have a string of one-star reviews from our harassers, our detractors, uh, we don't have the kind of ratings we would like to see. And ratings are how other people find out about our uh, show on Apple Podcasts. So if you could please go in, write a review, both review us and also write a content review would be really amazing. Um, so please do that if you have not already. Otherwise, please enjoy the show. is now a three-time guest on the end of sport as well as a prolific stat writer at the atlantic whose pieces we never ever miss amanda it's always so fun to have you on thanks for coming back and joining us today thank you so much for having me again kevin gannon is professor of history at granby university and author of the recent book radical hope a teaching manifesto and personally has been a huge huge influence on my pedagogy Kevin, we've wanted to have you on for so long and are thrilled to have you. Welcome to the end of sport. Thanks. It's great to be here with you all today. 
Stephen Salaita is a former associate professor at Virginia Tech and a should have been professor at the University of Illinois before having his position revoked in a literal instance of cancel culture for his principled comments about Israeli apartheid. He is the author of eight books, which is incredible, including 2015's On Civil Rights, Palestine, and the Limits of Academic Freedom. Steve, can't tell you what a pleasure it is to have you with us today. Oh, likewise. Thank you for having me. So we invited you on today because we're always interested in how people um, approach the topic of sport, how they approach their fandom, um, and particularly people who don't study sport as like a specific site of academic or intellectual inquiry. Um, and, and, and all of you have an interest in sport, um, all of you are sport fans to a certain extent. And so we really want to kind of dive into, you know, um, how you all, as some of our favorite anti-racist and or anti-capitalist critics, how you all come to engage with sport and experience fandom, again, as people who do not necessarily specialize intellectually and analyzing sport. And we really want to understand what it is that you all get out of your engagements with racial capitalist sport and how your experiences with sport, with and through sport, sorry, inform your politics. And so the first question that we have for you, and again, we'll start with Amanda, um, in order to sort of set the stage, is that can you um, somewhat briefly share with listeners the primary focus or orientation of your research and or political projects? Yes, I, um, as you said, I am a staff writer at The Atlantic. Um, uh, technically, my beat is uh, like health and consumerism. Um, but in in actuality, that sort of ends up being whatever I end up interested in, which is largely how um, uh, consumer identity and consumer systems play out in everyday culture, in, um, in identity creation, in how people uh, engage with the world and, and how they imagine um, the future to be, um, and what they, what they imagine is possible. Uh, and I, I think that, uh, sports are, um, a really just fascinating lens through which to, to look at those questions. Um, my professional work doesn't deal directly with sports. It deals a lot with shopping, a lot with, um, uh, beauty culture, wellness culture, um, uh, fitness culture, things like that, but not, not super directly all the time with, um, with sports, but, um, the sports and especially commercial sports in the United States, professional sports, big time college sports are a vehicle of identity creation of relationship creation of, uh, understanding oneself through, um, consumption. So I, I think that sports um, are a, a really natural fit for a lot of the things that I'm most interested in, in overall. And they're also something that, that I just um, have been really interested in my entire life. I was raised a sports fan, and I think we'll probably get into that um, to our personal relationships with sports more. But um, it, it's, it's sort of, um, if you can understand how sports work in America, you can understand how a lot of other stuff works in America, I think. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested in how stuff works. Yeah, absolutely. Kevin, we're interested to get your take on this as well. So I'm trained, such as it is, with uh, as a scholar of race and racisms in U.S. and continental North American history. I also study Mexico and the Caribbean. Um, and, and I'm also interested in radical political movements, in particular, the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, but that's 
you know, kind of one aspect of what I do. The, the main aspect of what I do as a scholar and a teacher now is I direct teaching and learning center. So I'm an educational mm-hmm. developer and really concerned with and interested in the ways that we do teaching and learning and which of course feeds into a larger sort of critical look at higher education. You know, what are the, the spaces in which we do that teaching and learning work with and among students? And so those things fuse together because I do a lot of work with critical pedagogy, with anti-racist teaching, with asking, you know, what does it look like to do teaching and learning through an explicitly justice-focused lens mm-hmm. uh, to get beyond just symbolic commitments to acronyms like DEI and to actually put, you know, sort of emancipatory principles into practice. What does that look like? And sport sort of hovers around a lot of it. Again, you know, I have my own personal connections with it, but in the places that I've worked, including my current institution, I find myself working with a number of student athletes. And in particular, uh, where I'm at now, about two thirds of our student body are student athletes. I work in a small college with a very large athletic program. And I find myself using sport and and being in those areas with my students as ways, as vehicles uh, to open up doors into larger sorts of historical inquiry, uh, as a way to engage students on ground that they're more familiar with and more directly relevant to them. Um, but of course, it's not just an intellectual exercise, because for many of my students, this is literally their ticket to higher education and the social mobility that it at least promises, right? So. So sport, it, you know, sort of, it's in the interstices of a lot of, of what I do, even if my own work and my own focus on teaching and learning might not explicitly address that all the time. Mm-hmm. And Steve? Well, I, I, I guess I have a, a pretty um, heterodox um, range of, of interests and, and professional commitments, if you will, but sports don't really figure into them. Um, I, I really, for the past few years, have been focused on the political essay, um, sometimes the long-form personal essay. So I've been doing a, a lot of different types of nonfiction writing, largely focused around Palestine. Palestine, I think, is 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 my great interest, my great passion. Indigenous studies, Native American studies, uh, my uh, scholarly interests really are, are are pretty closely aligned with with Kevin's. I'm I'm curious about race, racial formations. I'm interested in in race and capitalism. So, you know what what has come to be known in in the lexicon, I guess, as uh, often incorrectly as critical race theory. So, so I'm I'm interested also in in dynamics of of power vis-a-vis U.S. imperialism, U.S. foreign policy, and so forth. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of interested in sort of big, big questions around how we can make an, an impact as seemingly powerless individuals in, in a, a world of tremendously inscrutable and often violent geopolitics. I, I, I would say that I want to say that that my sports fandom is wholly extracurricular, but it's not really. And I, I, I guess to to try to draw it out more clearly, I I don't think that um, you know, my my professional interests in the past or the present would would lead me to um 
to an interest in sports or to to uh, a, a professional concern with sports. But I, I find that I cannot separate my sports fanhood from my professional interest. That is to say, I'm I, I constantly watch sports supposedly as an escape you know from from the doldrums mm. of of my professional life right uh <laughs> you know the the whole sports as and as an escape from society as you know you get on a sports message board and i do frequent sports message boards um you know uh, reddit and and specific ones for for the teams that i'm interested in and you know there's always a hard and fast rule no politics we don't want to discuss politics you know uh we we're here precisely to avoid politics but i find that uh, you know, sports are kind of a, a siphon for my politics, and it's impossible for me to to watch a sporting event or or take in any of the the commentary that surrounds it without thinking about it, thinking about it from the the, the point of view of of the way that I think about uh, social issues and geopolitics more broadly. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think Amanda, I, I think all three of you have have highlighted um that you can see many of the social problems that we study or that we're interested in uh, as writers or researchers, um, that broadly speaking in the social structure through and within sport as well. And I think that that's a really great segue now that we kind of have a sense of each of your 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 respective works and um and your politics, it it's a perfect segue to start talking about our relationship to sport um, and, and our, our relationship as fans. So I'm really interested in this next question is, is can you give us a, a, a window into this relationship with sport and fandom? How did you develop this interest for one? And, and how has that kind of interest evolved over time? So Amanda, I'd like to start with you as well. Yes, I, um, <clears throat> I I probably have told this story on here um, in, in a past episode, but I went to my first University of Georgia football game in the womb. Um, I uh, my dad is a University of Georgia grad, as am I. Um, my mom went to Auburn, so we have an intra-family rivalry. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I I grew up in Metro Atlanta. I grew up to parents uh, who were uh, SEC football fans. And um, I grew up as, with that as sort of like not only the primary organizing principle of like a lot of social culture around me, um, but as the primary organizing principle of my family and my relationship to my parents. Um, so it sport, I was I was given my fandom, my primary fandom um, at the same time that I was given um, any knowledge of life or family or culture. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was inherent. Um, and I, uh, and that is still really, really, really true. Um, I no longer live in, in the South. I live in Brooklyn. And, um, I I think that my, that my personal, um, emotional latch on college football has, has only deepened, um, in the 11 years that I've been out of the South and away from my family. Um, because it is, it is like a, it is a way to sort of keep some sort of tether, I think, to, to what feels like home to me. Um, and, and to keep a tether to my family and feel like we are moving through time at the same rate. Mm 
um, even though I don't see them very much. Uh, when Georgia won the national championship uh, this year, after 41 years, we had never won one in my lifetime. And I was starting to get very, very afraid that my dad um, might pass away before we ever win another one. And I wouldn't ever be able to celebrate that with him. And I, I called him on the phone after it was after mid- midnight. It was his 75th birthday. Um, and we just sobbed on the phone together. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't know what else does that mm-hmm. except sports. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what else would do that for my family if it weren't for college football. Um, and I think that that is a sort of, I, I think that sports let a lot of people um, look indirectly at things that are too bright to look directly at. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, that is my relationship with my father, my relationship with the South, um, and, and having moved away from my family and my, and the region of my birth. Um, so it is like, it is a deeply, you can probably hear it in my voice. It is a deeply emotional thing for me. Um, and then I'm just interested in sports, like overall, like I, I think mm-hmm. that, you know, uh, there is this fantasy of sports being a, um, an escape from reality for a mm-hmm. couple hours on the weekends or in the evenings or something like that. And I think that, um, that in some capacity sports really is that for me, like the other fandoms that I've picked up or the things that I find interesting. Um, but like, um, as Steven was saying, I, I, it's not something that I can look at and not feel everything else that I think about society and culture creeping in around the edges on, especially with college football. Um, but now it's a really important thing, um, with my, with my friends in New York, two of my, my best friends, the people I spent most of my time during the pandemic with people who feel like brothers to me now, um, we watch sports together. We sit at the bar for a couple hours and and watch sports. And like, sometimes it, it goes beyond that. And we end up talking about stuff that is unrelated, that is very personal, that is sort of, uh, hard to, hard to look at directly, like I said. Um, and I, I think it, uh, it has been in my life more than anything, sort of a vehicle for, um, greater intimacy with people around me. And Kevin. Yeah, I think a lot of my relationship with sports echoes what Amanda was just saying. Um, you know, and it, it, it may sound like a cliche and, you know, kind of a PR move, but for me, I have often found community in sports in times in my life where I haven't been able to find community in other ways, right? And, you know, I, my, my father was an Air Force officer. And so we moved around at least every three years when I was growing up. And I started elementary school uh, on an Air Force base in Japan. Uh, I, I, moved in first grade to an Air Force base in Hawaii halfway through the school year. And and it was sports that helped me connect with, you know, the other kids in class. It was like, this was sort of our common denominator, right? And what was interesting about that, though, is, you know, we were living in Hawaii, right? There, there was no local team or no one fandom community. Uh, and, you know, as the child of a military officer, you know, I was in what today we would call very diverse classroom environments, right? The military's diversity for me as, as a young school kid 
in retrospect was great. You know, I, I, I know what it's like to be in quote unquote multicultural spaces as a white kid. Right. And, and so the ability to, to be in the, and, you know, of course I wasn't conscious of that at that age. Right. But sports were the thing that we all related to each other with. Uh, and not just the boys either. And that's my other memory of that is that, it, you know, it was boys and girls, right? It was, you know, it wasn't as explicitly gendered uh, as one might expect either. Um, and, and I think that that was because it was an easy way for a lot of folks, whether it was their parents' fandoms or where they were from originally or something like that. Like we all had teams and they were all different teams. You know, we all just sort of picked who we rooted for, right? And so that's how I became a Cleveland sports fan as a kid growing up in Hawaii because nobody else picked Cleveland, right? <laughs> Everybody else picked the Steelers and the Cowboys. And I was like, well, I'm going to be different. And, you know, then I realized there was a reason nobody was picking Cleveland teams, right? And, uh, but, but that, you know, that, that, that forging of community, that has stayed with me. I've moved a lot even since, you know, through my education, through grad school, through my early academic career. Uh, and sports has been one of those ways that I've been able to find community. Um, but it was also an important part, too, of kind of my early education, if you will. I was kind of a precocious reader. And I got into a phase where I was reading a lot of autobiographies and, and, it, it may have been, this is what the Air Force Base's library had, right? But mm -hmm. the two like first adult autobiographies or memoirs that I read were Hank Aaron's and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's. And this would have been in the late 70s, uh, maybe early 80s, maybe 80, 81 at this point. Um, and so, you know, I read Hank Aaron's story about segregation and about the Negro Leagues and about what he faced, you know, as a nine-year-old kid, right? And I'm reading about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's, you know, political turn and his his conversion to Islam and, and in his words, how he's framing this and how he's talking in a very real and compelling way about civil rights issues and about being a black man moving in white spaces, which as a kid in the sort of environments I was in was a little bit of a foreign concept to me, right? Because mm -hmm. I'm living in Hawaii. I'm living, you know, in, in multicultural spaces. And, 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 you know, I knew at the time I'm, when I was reading, I'm like, these are really important things. Like I had that sense, right? Like I, I approached the, that reading with respect, with a sense of slight awe. And, and that has really stayed with me. And as my sports fandom has increased and intensified, you know, exponentially since then, even those are, those are the stories that those are the things, you know, Hank Aaron and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar have, have stayed with me through, through that. And I think that that has been, I, I can't articulate all the ways, but I think that that's been a really important part of sort of shaping the way that that I engage with sports, that I root for teams, that I root for players. Uh, and, and most importantly, I think that I engage with others um, who are fans and, who you know, in this sort of community of fandom. Mm -hmm. Great. And, and Stephen, could you give us a little bit of a, a window into your relationship with sports I'd and fandom? I'd be happy to, but, but generally speaking, Amanda and, and Kevin really answered the, the question brilliantly mm -hmm. and, and foregrounded everything that, that I would have said about the social role of sports, the intimate filial role of, of sports. But I, I grew up in 
a small town in in southern Appalachia on the the Virginia and West Virginia border. And so all the kids there were into sports. Football was particularly big. I, I would kind of describe myself as as the the all American sports fan, maybe with with um with a modern twist in that I. I, I, you know, I like football and basketball and, um, you know, and soccer as, as well. And that would be the, the, the modern twist. I know that soccer is starting to get some, some, some decent market share in, in, in the United States, in North America. And so I'm, I, you know, I, I, I keep track of uh, the Spanish league, the EPL, and of course, uh, the international competitions as well, as increasingly more people in the United States are doing. But my dad, went to college in Texas. Um, he, he went there from, from Jordan as an immigrant. And so he became a, a Dallas Cowboys fan. And then I guess he, you know, he bequeathed that, that awful inheritance to, to me and my brother. And so we became Dallas Cowboys fans and um, try as I might, you know, to, to stop <laughs> being a Cowboys fan. And there are a million reasons, you know, not to, to put myself through that that sort of suffering, I guess you know I remind myself because I live in in Northern Virginia. At least I'm not a Commanders fan because they they have the the one owner that that's even worse than ours. But um, mm-hmm. you know it mm-hmm. it's just it's something that that's almost totemic. It, it feels primal sometimes that you're not just giving up your interest in a particular team, but you're giving up a a particular and very strong basis of a filial relationship with 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 your with your parent, right? you know, like Amanda was talking about, you know, being in in the womb. And I, I, you know, and I went to college at the University of Oklahoma, so I'm an enormous Sooners fan. Um, and and I think back, you know, to my time in 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 college and how much of of one's social life revolves around um, sporting events. Uh, you know, not not just attending the games themselves, but watch parties um you know the meeting up at at the bars during the game or after the game the the house parties and the general sense of merriment that that happens after after a game particularly a big win these are all fundamental aspects of you know the the experience of your typical US college students i had a lot of international student friends at, at at Oklahoma and it didn't take them you know more than a month or two to become avid football fans even though you know they they probably thought the sport was silly before coming to the United States and probably knew very little about it they get there and it's a way of of integrating into the local culture sharing experiences with people and being in communication with people that they might not have been otherwise and that's that's one thing that a benefit, I think, that being a sports fan, uh, you know, as painful as it is in, in other times, has brought to my life that Oklahoma is filled with people, you know, of, of you could say, uh, I, I, the, who would be at ideological loggerheads with me. And we connect. We, we, we can form a human bond and a human relationship around our shared love of of the Sooners. So, you know, me, you know, an atheist, me, um, you know, as a, a, a hardcore leftist, some, somewhere along the communist spectrum, me, um, an internationalist, can, can 
really have a, a, a meaningful conversation with uh, somebody who is is uh, devoutly Christian, devoutly Republican. You know, in in that, in that moment, we we found a, a, a shared interest, and it's and it it might appear superficial at first, but it's not superficial. We're we're marking a particular geography that we can map out as comprehensible and 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 share and i think that's important it's important to find ways to connect to human beings outside of our own you know ideological and psychological orbits um our own spiritual orbits in some mm-hmm. cases and so that's that's kind of my uh history of sports i i guess I, it was a way of of integrating myself into whatever you know, local community I happened to find myself in from childhood all the way through and until college. And and it continues today. Um living in, in a suburban area where people come from all over the country. Um I always take note when um when I, I see a car with an OU bumper sticker. There's there's a a, a sense of, of like a, a special moment passing between us and then when I'm wearing OU gear, you know, I'm walking along the sidewalk or my kids soccer game or whatever, you know, I'll inevitably hear somebody shout out boomer. And uh, and, you know, and it's a really silly thing and and you know, pe- any listeners are are perfectly justified to to laugh at me for it, but there is there's something fundamental to that exchange that, that that's more than mere silliness. They're they're saying you know, I recognize you, and I recognize also that we share a particular experience and a particular interest that could actually be the basis for an interesting conversation or even a friendship. And and that 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 is that's something that intellectually, you know, I I might want to sort of demur and 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 make fun of, but emotionally, I understand that it's something important as well. Yeah, this, I'm sorry to interject, but I I think this is just such like an important point that Steve just made um, that, you know, I I too come from a a fandom that is um, a college football fandom that is uh, maybe not, well, probably mostly full of people that I just do not have much in common with politically as a, as a pretty hardcore leftist. Um, And I, I have found that being a football fan and being someone who's not just like nominally a fan, but is like really conversant in the details of the the various types of pain that Georgia football fans have endured over the years um, and, and conversant in like the details of sports, not just football, but other things sort of gives, gives me a way to soften people's boundaries a little bit. Um, when they don't agree with me politically. Um, it, I think it can be like a real indicator to people who disagree with you on most stuff that, that you were not um, an, an alien, that you were not a person who is uh, fundamentally different from them in every way. You are a person who comes from a lot of the same things that they do. And I think that, you know, it it is not you know, I don't think it's revolutionary, but I think that at least in one-off interactions, there's an opportunity in that to sort of, uh, for a little bit of recognition that, uh, that people you, the people that, um, disagree with me and who might have painted me as some type of like cartoonish enemy in their minds for them to realize that like, oh, this is, this is a person who, who, 
barks at football games just like I do. <laughs> this is this is a person who is strange in some of the ways that I am strange, um, and that has endured a lot of the emotional roller coaster that I have ridden for the past several decades. And it, it feels like there's something there. I don't know if intellectually there is, but it. it it can feel in those moments like there is like a little bit of like spark of recognition of like, Oh, this is this person is not a cartoonish villain. This person is like me. Yeah. I think that that's really kind of the essence of it. Right. As both Amanda and Steve have put so well that it occurred to me as I was listening to both of them just now that there are almost every area of our lives is unfolding in spaces. Whenever we go outside of our sort of, you know, where we live, our, you know, unit, whatever that might be, right. That the larger landscape militates so much against solidarity, against community, against human connection. Uh, but yet sports is one of those areas that manages to do all of that. And, I, and I'm not trying to sugarcoat it. I mean, there's all mm-hmm. sorts of you know awful things that swirl around it too. Yet, right? And yet <laughs> the the community, the solidarity, the the leveling of barriers. And, and as Amanda, I think, put it so well, the opportunity to see one another as the full and complicated human beings that we are. Yeah. occupying this shared space where this is a thing that connects us, even if nothing else connects, right? Yeah. That that in itself, given the times we're in now, and given the era we've been in for the last several decades, I think is a really important and meaningful and, and, and I would say vital mm-hmm. thing for us, us to have, or at least have access to. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the, you're, you're all talking about this like sense of community that is it, it seems to be like one of those things that really draws us into sport. And, and I'm a little bit saddened that Nathan couldn't join us today because he's, he's kind of written about this, the relationship between community fostering and building and, and fandom. He, he's, he's argued that a significant part of the appeal of fandom in late capitalism is the way that it can compensate for the alienation and the isolation wrought by the set of social relations that kind of divorces us from what um, Karl Marx, uh, the, the elephant in the room, calls our, our species being. And, and that is, while for Marx, human beings are essentially social creatures, and we've all talked about that thus far, capitalism systematically separates us from one another. It places us in, in these competitive and exchange relations that make the community and the connection that we're supposed to thrive on much more difficult. His argument, um, Nathan's argument, and he borrows from Benedict Anderson, is that imagine communities that form around athletic spectacle serve a sort of com- uh, compensatory function. They, they, they offer the possibility of, of some form of collective belonging that hinges upon the sacrificial labor of athletes. So my question for you with with that kind of context in mind is one, does any of that resonate with you at all? And I think um, personally, more importantly, is there a way in which as a fan and on an emotional level, physical harm experienced by athletes that we're watching and we're trying, we're watching to foster this community might even be satisfying in a way because it justifies or validates our investments in fandom. 
I, I, I will start with Amanda there as well. Yeah, I, I think that um, what you were saying and, and Nathan's argument about the sort of com- compensatory compensatory value of uh, a fandom in, in the place it how it helps foster communities that are that are other were otherwise alienated from under capitalism is exactly right. I well, while you were talking about that, I was thinking of um, the Georgia Alumni Association in New York and um, in in what it does. And I used to uh, be a board member on it, but I'm, I'm no longer. Um, but what we d- we do for uh, for new students um, arriving just out of college or people people from UGA moving to New York and the sort of, um, and all of this is, is, you know, sort of, uh, oriented around, um, football game watches where we get like 600 people in a bar in Midtown, um, Manhattan to watch, um, Georgia football every weekend. Um, Mm. and you know, the, the opportunity to sort of give people a landing place and a familiarity, um, when they're coming uh, far from home by themselves, probably for the first time in their lives, uh, to to try something new and try to make a life, to you know, entering a place where they have no community and no um, support system, and just like sort of providing them with a with a set of people to um, to lean on automatically because we're we went to the same college, but I, I think more importantly because we're the fans of the same football team. Um, is, you know, that's done like really explicitly in that case, because we're, we're in a particular situation where a lot of people transplant here, um, and don't have anybody. Uh, so very, you know, it's very legible how that creates a, a sort of, uh, pop-up community for new people, um, and gives people who are already here something, something to sort of lean on, um, when they miss home or they, you know, are missing their families. Um, if that's where the, their fandom comes from and for, in college football, it is for a lot of people. Um, I think that, and I'm just sort of, tra- you know, I'm sort of processing this in real time. So if I am inarticulate, my apologies, no, 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 um, no. <laughs> but, but I think that, um, the high stakes of sports themselves and the, the sort of like real world, um, danger that comes from a lot of sports um i i think absolutely has an emotional hook to it for people um Mm -hmm. i don't think i don't think i would be honest if i were trying to brush that off um i I think that some of the sort of emotionally exploratory value of sports is um is that it gives you an opportunity to explore negative emotions in places in a place where they're um, appropriate and and they're not shamed and they're not um and you're not dissuaded from uh from experiencing anger or sadness or um or other types of negative emotions um and i think that that ties into the fact that those emotions uh, come so readily in those situations ties into the fact that um you know sports is made up but sports is real life mm-hmm. um the people you're watching are uh are you know actually venturing something actually risking something in in most cases even in even in sports that are not um that are not uh overwhelmingly violent or not violent as uh as the the main course um in the way that like mma or football is um but i think that the fact that um 
that those risks are real makes those emotions um, sort of uh, call to the surface more readily and makes them feel more appropriate to express in those situations. And that expression of emotions, you know, I, I have joked before, I think on Twitter that um, the sports fan sports isn't about was winning and losing sports is about um, getting to uh, scream in public. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think that, uh, that that's a big part of it, uh, which is uh, horrifying, yeah. but true. Yeah, absolutely. Kevin, does any of this, anything that we've chatted about in the conversation yet resonate with you? Oh, pretty much all of it. Yeah. And, mm. you know, I, I tend to agree a lot with Nathan's argument almost completely, in fact. And, you know, again, finding, you know, what is that space in which we transcend or, or fight back against or, or are able to ignore that deep and profound alienation? that pervades so much of what we do, right? It occurs to me as someone who thinks a lot about uh, student success in college, for example, you know, how we know that, you know, for students in particular, those from marginalized and historically underserved communities that, you know, community, solidarity, belonging can be one of, you know, those things that really undergird uh, successful college experiences and meaningful learning and the, the sort of promises of higher ed coming true for those students. And one way that we build those things on campus is through sort of some of the culture and community that surrounds sporting events, uh, as Amanda talks about. Um, you know, and it doesn't even have to be if your team is successful. I did my PhD at the University of South Carolina, you know, which has been an SEC doormat for so long. So I've seen Georgia football, uh, but from another perspective, right, as they beat us 52 to nothing, you know. And, well, South um, Carolina gets us occasionally. Occasionally. Yeah, we're, we're good for that, that surprise upset. And watch out, we're on the come. So, you know, but... Uh, but again, this, this is an example of it, right? Like this idea that, you know, we're all plugged into this thing. And, and, and even if one isn't, you know, an ardent football fan, this, there's still ways in which this could help foster connections and a sense of community and imagined community, if you will, on a campus. And I think those things are important uh, for far beyond just, you know, athletic bragging rights, right? I think it is a student succession. And this is one of those things, certainly not the only thing but one of the things that can contribute to that. But then personally, given the risks involved, especially in a sport like football, um, you know, I've boxed before, and so I've experienced firsthand some of the dangers that come with you, the more physical and violent of the sports. Um, there's a deep ambivalence, right? And one of the things that I have tracked as I have grown older and even more immersed in sports is my fandom now is so I've always been sympathetic to labor, if you will, but my fandom is now, you know, less it's still sort of attached to teams, but in a much more attenuated and, and ephemeral way than, you know, I'm rooting for players. Mm -hmm. I'm rooting for individual. I'm rooting for the athletes. I'm rooting against ownership, mm -hmm. right? Like I'm rooting, I'm rooting for for player empowerment, right? And so recent developments that we see across the landscape, whether it was the NBA walkout back in uh, 2020 or, what, or 2020 and 2021, whether it was, you know, whether it's the way that NCAA athletes uh, and name, image, and likeness uh, benefits now, you know, and the ways that we're finally addressing some of these inequities, albeit unevenly. Like those are the things as a fan now, like, you know, I'm rooting hard for players and and 
the players on a team, yes, but the players, but for labor, right? And so that's been in the, in the last probably five or 10 years, I think one of the things that has changed about my fandom, and it's exactly along the lines that you're talking about, is as a fan, I look for those bonds of community and those bonds of solidarity and, 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 and things of that nature. But deep down, you know, in my sort of, you know, spiritual core of fandom, if you will, I think the way I'm able to at least try to reconcile the risks inherent with sport and the damage, the very real damage that it could do, is to remember and be very intentional about who I'm rooting for and why. Mm-hmm. And and so the the labor turn in my fandom, if you will, I think has been at least my way of trying to navigate what has become kind of a complicated and fraught space. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm also, I think I'll, I'll throw in there, I'm also an alumni of that um, fine institution at the University of South Carolina. And it was there that I really felt the tension and the conflict between fandom and um, and all of the problems that I think we, we've, we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, and in particular, in particular I, I'm particularly swayed by Nathan's argument that fandom itself hinges on sacrificial labor. And we have to reconcile with that in interesting ways, or, or we have to at least think about that in a really, like, is it possible to be a fan without relying on the sacrificial labor of athletes? And if not, what does that sort of mean? And I think we're all, we're all bringing in interesting perspectives um, to that. Uh, Steve, I'd like to get your your take on this this question. Does any of this resonate with you? Very as well? much so. I've you know I've I've read Nathan's some of Nathan's work on sports and he's on point the the difficult thing to address but but I think we need to address it is is you know his his point about injury you know physical injury and and mm-hmm. the type of of satisfaction or even pleasure that the fan if only tacitly d- derives from that kind of spectacle and I think it's true you keep digging and and some of the aspects of 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 fanhood can can get rather ugly or complicated let me you know i would say make a distinction also in the united states between professional sports and and college sports um there are a lot of overlapping issues but i i think that there's less of an ethical burden watching professional sports even though the same dynamics predominate Knowing that at least they're they have unions that that they collectively bargain, um, you know, I, I think that the athletes certainly should, uh, professional athletes should should get a, a much bigger piece of the pie and 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 should have other protections. But they're generally in a better position than the college athlete. And I think that for watching college sports, for me, um, college football particularly becomes more and more of an ethical challenge and if i could just turn off my fanhood i would and i'm in a way i'm I'm trying to disengage myself from from it per, per, precisely for some of the reasons that that nathan and and others bring up but these are things that i, I think about you know on my own as a fan what happens to the athlete and it also comes up in the way that that fans talk about the athletes themselves Let's go back to the point about injury. And, uh, you know, I, I think 
a lot of people would recoil a lot of, you know, your, your average fan, whatever that is might say, no, I, I, I take absolutely no pleasure or, or satisfaction from the physical harm that athletes endure. Well, not explicitly, no, but on, on a, a lot of uh, unconscious levels you do. And sometimes the, the unconscious, unconscious becomes explicit. We treat athletes who go out for supposedly minor injuries with a tremendous amount of scorn, right? It, you know, they're soft. That's the worst thing you can be as a professional athlete is, is soft. Yeah. You got an injury and you can walk, you need to be out there because you are totemic to the fan. You are an instrument of, of the fan's psyche and they want you to be a certain kind of warrior. They want you to play through the pain. They want you to represent what they imagine to be the very best of their self-mythology as an individual or as a community or whatever the case may be. And so that necessarily relies on a, a glorification of injury. That is a glorification of physical harm. You know, when when we talk about, let's say, college football with all of the changes as, as kevin was talking about with name image and likeness the the nil the predominant ethic that or reaction i've seen across fan bases not the not the exclusive one but the predominant one is that the athletes finally able to earn money is ruining the sport for me the fan Right? So the fan yeah. becomes prioritized in a particular way, and the athlete on whom this entire industry is built and 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 functions ends up, uh, you know, sort of being a, a secondary character. And a, a quick point: I, I, if I'm dropping the gun, interrupt me about nil. You know, they they completely fucked it up, and they fucked it up on purpose. And and the way that they've done it, it, it should make fans and and players mad, rather than splitting the revenues. Right with the universities mm -hmm. and with the NCAA, which would have would have been the, the 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 right thing to do at the very least, right? You know, the coaches are getting a you know Lincoln Riley getting ten million, you know Nick Saban over ten million. Mm -hmm. Um, you know these are exorbitant salaries. Even the assistant coaches now, the offensive and defensive coordinators are getting paid uh the you know the best ones in the two million dollar range. Even even the most minor position coaches are making four hundred five hundred thousand dollars. We're talking about serious money. They don't want to split that revenue. The schools and the mm -hmm. institution, the NCAA, don't want to split those revenues with, with the athletes. So NIL, in a sense, while it's been good for that, I hope they earn as much money as they possibly can. I hope they earn into the millions, right? Uh, the more they can get, the better. If they have to hop from school to school to do it, then let them hop and let them get paid, mm -hmm. right? Because, uh, you know, they, they shouldn't be doing this stuff for free. But anyway, you know, uh, you know, by there's the 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 universities and the NCAA and whoever else is in the conferences, whoever else is invested, really sort of outsourced, you know, the the generation of 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 revenue yeah. into this very individualistic paradigm where corporations and boosters and individual donors are sort of taking up the burden of, of putting money into the athlete's pocket. And that creates all kinds of troublesome and, and problematic dynamics that we're going to increasingly see. The proper way to have done it would have been, uh, you know, collectively bargaining a revenue 
sharing system like they do in professional sports. They got to drop the pretense that, that there's anything amateur about these athletics anymore. Not with these yeah. kinds of salaries. It never really was a- amateur athletics, or it hasn't been for the last thirty or forty years. But but now, I don't think even even the the most you know wide eyed, doe eyed fan is 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 buying that premise anymore. And so I, I really think that that or what I would like to see is that, that that athletes move in the direction of of unionizing, forming unions, and then collectively bargaining and implementing a a, a set of of regulations that at least provide some kind of minimal protection for, for their health that, that provides long-term health care, et cetera, like at least they have in, in the professional sports league. Sorry, I went on a tangent there. <laughs> um, something I think is interesting about NIL and the sort of media and public reception to it is in, I have been watching this pretty closely because as I said, uh, college football is my primary fandom interest. And also I think is just, um, one of the most interesting sports on like a political, ethical, moral level um, mm-hmm. for uh, all the reasons uh, Steve mentioned. And uh, it really seems to me, especially in the past couple of months since the end of this most recent football season, that a lot of the outrage about NIL is not necessarily like a bottom up fan phenomenon um, because like fans of big time college football uh, teams want to get these players paid. Uh, the you know, Georgia fans know that Georgia boosters have a lot of money. We want to make sure it goes to uh, the athletes that we want to play at the University of Georgia. Um, uh, that seems to be not a full consensus, but I think it's a majority opinion based on what I've seen uh, people at um, at least richer schools talking about. But the the sort of like um, sort of weird. Uh, lecturing response to nil that that i have seen has has been um i i think largely seeded by sort of traditional media voices in sports mm-hmm. i think that you see a lot of people who are um extremely well sourced among um uh you know ncaa officials among um college sports administrators uh things like that and and especially among um the conference leadership uh, where you have, um, you know, people who are used to having a tremendous amount of power in how the sport functions, who feel like they're losing a little bit of their grip on power um, and losing a little bit of their um, ability to sort of order things how they'd like. And you see this sort of in with um, coaches, too. I, I think that um, Jimbo Fisher's uh, reaction to yeah. uh, the uh, NIL collective stuff and, and of his reaction to Texas A&M being criticized for um, for paying so much, basically, is uh, is the sort of uh, the beginning of a realization among coaches that this might be sort of like the beginning of the end of the sort of like Svengali coach. Because if it's not his personal genius that is bringing people to Texas A&M, if it is just money, then like, why is he worth $10 million a year? So I think that you see a lot of this NIL sort of um, uh, questioning coming sort of top down. And like, obviously, I think the NIL situation needs to be reformed, needs to be uh, changed. I think revenue sharing obviously would be a a much better solution to this problem in addition to letting players um you know contract on their 
um, name, image, and likeness uh, to to earn extra income that way if there is demand for it. And for a lot of them, there is very clear demand. Um, and but I, I think that the sort of the NIL backlash such that it exists is something coming um, primarily is sort of like astroturfed out of these um, centers of power and not necessarily uh, a bottom up sort of uh, day to day fan reaction. Um, at least not among fans at like the big powerful schools who know that they can compete in this type of market, um, which I just think is interesting and, and another sort of demonstration of how um, narratives about players and narratives about power in sports and money in sports get sort of um, seeded in the narrative. Yeah, and it, it speaks to the to the just the powerhouse that is the college sport media complex with people like Seth Greenberg, Seth Davis, who can continuously uh tweet out about how how uh campus athletic workers are making millions and millions of dollars and that that nil is is ruining college sports and all this stuff and it really speaks to the to just how powerful that machine is for manufacturing consent um at the at the sort of political um level in the same context of the supreme court the Republican-led, GOP-led Supreme Court and the NLRB moving in the opposite direction and talking about what Steve has mentioned in terms of uh, uh, unionization and, and uh, labor rights and legal rights for campus athletic workers. And so you raise a really important point, I, and I think I agree with that, um, uh, uh, Amanda, in terms of the, it, it seems to be a, a top-down um, narrative that's supported by the the media rather than maybe a, a, an overwhelming consensus amongst fan bases. Yeah, it's true. Well, and it's there's just... been there's been an interesting convergence around NIL, hasn't there? Um, politically, you know, you have I, I think a, a broad agreement among leftists, liberals, and libertarians. You know, around wanting, uh, you know, payers to get play. You know, J- Jay Billis, you know, um, the, the ESPN commentator and former Duke basketball player from a libertarian standpoint has been banging the drum of, you know, getting payers played for, paid for a very long time, you know. And, and you know, this is, this is, I think, a particular issue. Amanda is right about, you know, there's a sort of astroturf narrative that, that is seeping in, in, into mm-hmm. the discourse. But it, it is interesting to me which sort of ideological tendencies are okay with the the players getting getting paid and what their rationale you know for supporting it is mm-hmm. well and kind of one thing um i mean i i um i mean i think you bring up such a good point like and a question for me is sort of like why haven't we heard more about what fans are thinking i think there's this assumption that they just like agree and i was sort of thinking like i don't think of seen a single piece on sort of fan responses to NIL kind of, as you said, now that the football season has ended and and we're coming up on like a year's worth of having NIL. I mean, one thing that I've seen, and, and I should say, like, I am not clued into the fan community. I don't, I don't watch college sports, um, not just for ideological reasons, but I just, don't, I don't watch them. Um, is that when it comes to the issue of the transfer portal, because that to me seems to be the sticking point that a lot of fans have. And again, they're, they are hearing it from 
sports pundits, from coaches, things like that. But this sort of question of loyalty, of sort of like athletes are not loyal and they're only chasing the money. Um, that could be simply that I'm seeing people amplifying that point over and over from fans and like, you know, and reply guys on Twitter, right? And I know that's a very specific sort of community and it's not necessarily representative, but that seems from what I understand to kind of be the point that fans, some fans are sticking to is that athletes are, you know, transferring because of money and therefore they're not loyal and they're only playing for money and they're not playing for UGA or whatever. But again, that's just kind of been what, what I've observed. Um, again, that's anecdotal and is not like, you know, analytical. Yeah. And I think that like, um, there is definitely a, uh, a tier of fan who really cares about like the concept of like player loyalty and who is really bothered by the transfer mm -hmm. portal. Um, and, uh, you sort of end up with that, um, with the same issue in, in hearing those opinions as you do in hearing, um, you know, the people who have a bad review are the people who are most likely to leave a review on anything on the internet. <laughs> and I think that includes like the idea of the transfer portal. Um, and, and, and I think that, you know, college sports had such a specific attitude toward transfers for such a long time that it doesn't really surprise me that uh, there is a, um, a, a sizable chunk of of the fan population that is just having a hard time like mentally moving on from that previous model and i think that anytime you uh, seriously reform like a structural element of something in which people have like a real emotional um buy-in you are going to get people who are just sort of reflexively um upset about it and mm -hmm. screaming about it and people scream about sports on the internet to begin with so i think that you are sort of inclined to see like a big population of people um pushing back on that i don't know i i don't know if there's been any polling about this but i would i would sense that um the transfer portal is something that will become less controversial in like the next couple of years because people will just get used to it um and i also sense that it's a little bit of a live by the sword die by the sword situation where um somebody who's the fan of a school who stands to um in that moment or in in a particular situation they're in stands to um get sort of raided and have their uh their best players uh wooed away by by larger more successful schools probably hates it but you know when they're able to get some players who uh who are leaving you know larger schools who they couldn't have recruited themselves they probably think it's great so i i think that you end up with a lot of sort of like transitory emotions about the transfer portal expressed uh based on who's whether someone thinks they're winning or losing in the moment um and uh i'm not sure it, i i think it's just hard to sort of uh extrapolate that out to an understanding of how fandom in general feels about the idea uh my uh my perception um you know from talking to people in person from listening to people talk about this online from being in some sort of uh band communities on the internet is that there are some people who hate it and most people are just like well that's how it is mm -hmm. you know they're working they've got th these are jobs whether they want to call it jobs or not um and i think that that perception will probably become um more of the default as people get used to the change i think too it'll be really interesting to see how this uh debate whether it's the transfer portal or whether it's more autonomy or you know agency for college athletes in general how this conversation plays out now in this sort of late covid 
ongoing COVID environment, right? Where we're seeing a real shift uh, in the discourse around, you know, what loyalty does an employee owe an employer? Uh, you know, how come, quote unquote, nobody wants to work, right? Like all the stuff that used to work about 10 years ago, you know, nobody wants to work. We have all these jobs. And of course, now the, the general reaction is, well, those jobs are really shitty and they don't pay well. Yeah, and if yeah. you want people to work, pay them. Like mm -hmm. there has been an upsurge in that. And I think that that worker discourse is a really interesting lens to watch things like the transfer portal and things like name, image, and likeness, you know, to see that conversation unfold now on a very changed landscape will be a fascinating process, I think. Yeah, there, there's always, like, there's always these two contradictory things when I think about the transfer portal. It's like, yes, it, it provides some flexibility to to athletes to be able to go seek out better working conditions. But then on the, on the other side, the more insidious use of that is actually by the power brokers in college athletics uh, and i'm talking about coaches um strength coaches uh head coaches assistant coaches who are using the transfer portal to coerce athletes into leaving in in very interesting ways and i don't think that discourse is really out there there are a finite number of scholarships particularly on the on the football team and and if uh, uh if a coach wants to recruit someone into that football program if they have that that scholarship filled it's very difficult to do that but if they can nudge a person to leave and oh i can i can hook you up with a transfer to a better situation um that's that's a pro that's fundamentally problematic um for me amanda i see you went on mute so maybe uh you you had some have some thoughts there yeah i have i have like a ton of thoughts about this topic um and i have i have uh had the benefit of hearing some people who um i think are really smart college football commentators and journalists who are not um you know who are independent who do not mm -hmm. have to toe the mainstream line talk about this and think about this and and hear what they've heard from sources and i think that um that the sort of like uh, structural downsides of the transfer portal and NIL for athletes themselves and for how those um, sort of unregulated markets can be used to manipulate athletes for sort of nefarious ends has been um, undercovered mm -hmm. in general media. I, mm -hmm. And I think that um, probably we'll figure out how to have this conversation eventually. Uh, but I think that, we're in sort of like this transitory space about um, athlete rights and worker rights uh, in in sports in the country in general that makes these conversations sort of difficult to have in a nuanced way um, because there is sort of this knee-jerk negative reaction to anybody saying anything negative about the transfer portal or mm -hmm. about NIL um, even when those uh, criticisms are nuanced in good faith and uh, made with the well-being and uh, labor rights of athletes in mind um, because it, it has taken so long for it and a lot of this push has been from fans um, uh, paying athletes became extremely popular in um, in the general college football uh, fan base over um, the previous like 15 years or so. Um, it was it pulled really, really poorly. And then I think a lot of uh, sort of independent media on the Internet in particular has helped sort of push this into much more common acceptance across, you know, political lines, as as we said. And I, I think that. Um, you know. 
the way that you make participation in um in sports less harmful for college athletic workers is to give them um the structures that make employment fairer for other types of workers you you uh they unionize they get um you know collective bargaining rights they um you know uh don't have uh their their movement restricted they don't have uh you know other parts of their lives restricted by their um affiliation with a football team or a basketball team um and uh and they don't have their outside economic rights curtailed by their participation in those um, in those institutions. Um, and I think that, you know, NIL and the transfer portal are important, good developments in sort of like pushing forward the larger project of, um, making, uh, labor fairer and safer for athletic workers. Um, but it is sort of, uh, you know, you start to change little things and you sort of like illuminate more of the cracks in the system that need addressing. Um, and I think that NIL and the transfer portal to uh, a certain extent have done that and sort of shown us where we need more regulation and more, um, more uh, labor policies. And I think too, you know, hovering in and around all of this is the racial aspect, mm-hmm. right? That yeah. in this country, we can't have discussions about labor without paying attention to race mm-hmm. because racism and white supremacism will in many cases motivate either white fans or white laborers themselves to perhaps oppose things that would be collectively better for their class interest because of their perceived racial identification right so it, it you know it it's no coincidence that we're having you know mostly the old white male commentariat in the sports media decrying the loss of something sacred mm-hmm in sports where the most visible majority of athletes are young black men. Uh, And I think that we, you know, I know we know this, but I just think we need to acknowledge that because any way that we talk about this sort of labor conversation going forward has to take that into account, given in particular the extremely sharp edges around race and racism that have manifested in our society over the last couple of years anyway. Absolutely. And, um, I mean, I think like the, the people who push back against, you know, the, these the, this labor movement um, drives for unionization and stuff, right? They point to like, oh, we need to return to this pure form of sport, which is total BS. And it's honestly like a racist, I mean, it's a racist ideology, not only because purity is always portrayed as being white, right? As being white and neutral and better and, and you know, always have, you know, has always having been better than anything that is, is now. Um, whereas the movement, right, to actually unionize and college athletic workers' rights, and thank you, Amanda, for saying college athletic worker, because it's something that we really believe in, right, that these um, these athletes, black, brown, and white athletes too, right, they are laborers, and, and they're laborers just like workers at Amazon and Starbucks, right? And so I really appreciate, Kevin, that you brought in that broader, not only the racial capitalist um, project, but also the broader la- labor drives that we're seeing right now. Um, I mean, we saw a lot of this within athletes in summer 2020. Um, we haven't seen quite as much of it since then. Um, NIL seems to have kind of dampened some of that. But like we had, we recorded a really excellent episode just last night that will probably come out before this one with a bunch of uh, former athletes and one current athlete. And, and they're all sort of discussing, you know, how can athletes collectively work together and kind of the challenges, but also the opportunities within college sport to actually do that. 
Um, and so it's just really interesting and hopefully exciting. And we're, you know, so hoping that athletes are going to start doing this, but you're absolutely right, Kevin, that we cannot, we cannot escape and we cannot ignore the fact that this is all supported by racial capitalism, right? That's why there's this connection to the plantation and enslavement and, you know, college co coaches and administrators being, you know, seen as enslavers or cogs and the, the wheel of enslavement, right? Because it is building on all of these histories and foundations here in the U.S. Um, and that's actually a, a good kind of pivot to this next question that we have. And, you know, everyone has touched on this to different aspects. We are sort of wondering if each of you could talk about the ways in which um, your sort of fandom and politics conflict with one another. And, and everyone has talked about it. We really want to kind of dive into that and kind of get a sense of, you know, how does that conflict manifest? And, and where did that emerge? Was there kind of one moment in time? Has it been a process? And just to kind of hear how you've come to, to view your sports fandom and your politics today. And now we'll start with Amanda again. Um, I, I don't think I remember a point at which I realized like, oh, this is bad. <laughs> um, I think, I think that I always sort of understood that I was raised um, pretty progressive, especially in my understanding of like the, the need for labor rights, the need for um, uh, especially uh, equality across racial lines. You know, I was, I'm from Georgia. Um, you don't grow up in Georgia with conscientious parents uh, without being extraordinarily um, exposed to that and, and exposed to the, the reasons why it doesn't exist and the reasons why it should and, and the, um, and all of the harm it causes. Um, so I don't think that I, I cannot remember a moment where I went like, Oh, this is like pretty bad. Um, but I, I think that, uh, and this is where I think a lot of my, um, a lot of my work comes from this sort of, um, central, conflict that I feel between um between uh, anti-capitalism and my my political and uh, moral beliefs and uh the sort of like consumer capitalist society that we live in where we're asked to construct our identities through consumption and through purchases and through um you know pledging our uh our income toward different things. Um, and in the uh, systems that create all of those opportunities, all of those, um, th the system of consumption is inherently um, harmful. It is inherently um, damaging to the planet. It's damaging to the people who work within that system. Um, so I, I think that for me, college football and sports in general is just like a piece of this larger understanding that um, the, that my that as a you know white upper middle class american um i uh, experience all of these opportunities to sort of like construct my identity by buying things by participating in things and that all of those things to a certain extent um uh, are created by the exploited labor and exploited resources of other people mm -hmm. um the system of consumption that we live in um, requires it. It requires an underclass. It requires exploitation. Um, so to me, college football and sports in general does not feel um, separate from any of that. 
and like my you know the the breadth of my work largely is is about how you reckon with that and how if you're a person who benefits from it how you try to like pull yourself outside of it to see the system instead of just see how it improves or uh harms your personal life um and i think that you know that goes for like you know should you have an amazon prime subscription should you mm. do this should you do that um what kind of food should you buy what is it okay to go to the grocery store do you need to get everything that's possible from the farmers market what impact can your personal consumer decisions even have um how do you uh and consumerism is is inherently individualistic. How do you get outside that framework to um, reestablish, um, you know, your fundamental human uh, ties to other people outside of a consumer, um, a, a consumer mindset, a consumer system? And uh, so my personal efforts to reckon with my college football fandom and my sports fandom are. Uh, I think uh, reflected everywhere else in my life. Um, college football is like a particularly um, good place to examine it up close though, because the exploited workers are, um, are more visible in college football than they are in, um, you know, clothing manufacturing and, and things like that. Um, uh, because there are, most of our other consumer systems are much better at hiding the exploitation overseas. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and among, um, very poor people. Uh, so it, in my mind, at least in sports, we are looking at this directly. Um, there's a lot of people having bad reactions to it, um, right. and, and having, uh, immoral, unethical reactions to it. But, um, I think it's legible in a way that is, that can be useful in talking and thinking about, um, consumer identity and, and who it hurts. Yeah. What about you, Kevin? So I think a really good case study that would open a window into the way my, my sort of conflicted relationship with sports and fandom and my larger principles is I mentioned, you know, I'm a Cleveland sports fan and I'm a huge baseball fan. And until this year, the Cleveland baseball team was called the Indians and mm -hmm. had, you know, the profoundly offensive uh, mascot, the chief Wahoo mascot who even in decades before existed in even worse form in terms of the caricature and the, the racist trope that it represented. And, you know, when I was a kid, that wasn't something that registered to me uh, in ways that it probably should have. Um, but certainly as I, as I became older and continued to follow sports and then at having those windows open for me and, and also, you know, for folks who've taught me, you know, to be more aware of, of the ways in which, you know, oppression works and the indigenous history of this country, for example. It was really hard to be a fan of a franchise that, you know, at one point sort of proudly trafficked in that imagery. And, you know, so I made all sorts of, you know, just half-assed accommodations. You know, I didn't wear the mascot. I didn't call, you know, the nickname of tribe or the team or anything like that. And tried to focus on the ways in which, you know, this was a franchise that did have a history in terms of, you know, with Larry Doby and integrating uh, black players into the American League, for example. But at best, you know, those are half measures, right? That, And I think what it really drove home was that none of this is easy. 
And what does it look like to be someone who wants to cling to certain principles that are non-negotiable yet in this one aspect of their life that's pretty important to them, you know, have allegiance to a team that 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 whose you know image whose public face violates those principles right and you know that's you know i tried to not be a fan and it's one of those like i just can't quit you kind of you know as, as we talk about how primal and and visceral fandom can be like that was a thing and i really struggled with that and and you know finally i'm let off the hook basically by the name change this year which i fully endorse even though i would have loved to see spiders instead of guardians um, but I think, you know, I really struggle with that. Um, I don't think that I lived out the principles that I adhere to, uh, or that I say I adhere to in the way that my fandom expressed. Right. Uh, and, you know, I don't have any good explanations or, or easy answers to that, but it's, I think what it does show is the ways that sports and fandom can be so fraught, especially for those of us from dominant cultures you know white culture who weren't able to discern and see clearly the ways in which damage can be done uh, by what you think are seemingly normal and harmless things and so for me you know that's where i fall short uh, in terms of an alignment with the things that i believe in and hope to act out in the world and so it shows how fandom can be intertwined in ways that are that are fraught uh and you know problematic in many ways if that makes i don't know if i articulated that very well uh but i think that you know that was kind of you know there was a point where i was like all right i am no longer a cleveland fan if we don't fucking change the name right like mm -hmm. and they did and i was and i was still afraid they were gonna fuck it up like because it was yeah. so foot dragging and awful um but there is part of me that's like you know i was I signed petitions. I sent letters. I, you know, as a longtime fan, you know, is, is my voice, does it matter? Maybe, maybe not. But it was one of those, like, maybe that's the currency that I can use to work in my own way with others to try to leverage things, mm -hmm. you know. But even as I say that, you know, that sounds like kind of a thin rationalization. Yeah. Steve. Sorry, I'm saying, um, yeah, there's, there's, the, the conflict is continuous, and that's part of the pleasure and part of the agony of being a consumer of sports. Mm -hmm. Um, if, if you're not conflicted, then you're not doing any thinking. And if you're not doing any thinking, then you've just rendered yourself the kind of passive consumer that, that becomes an easy mark for, corporations and demagogues and 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 so forth so there there i think there needs to be a, a conflict intellectually and yeah. ethically um and and for me the the conflict really you know we, we've discussed it in context of of college sports but for you know professional sports really it's it's around the ownership model you know the fact that we we are aware as fans, and and many of us certainly don't like it and express our displeasure. But you know they, you know a lot of the the team owners, billionaires are are fleecing communities out of out of their tax dollars to to fund extravagant um, stadiums that that put more money into the the owner's pocket. Um, they're constantly 
fleecing the fans around something so simple as as parking or concessions. You know, I know that in AT&T Stadium in Dallas, um, popularly known as as Jerry World, you know, the the parking is exorbitant. And, you know, I, I don't know the exact figures, but uh, Jones, the Jones family um, controls that 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 revenue and it's it's a ton of revenue. And it's revenue that, that that family doesn't necessarily need. It prices out a good amount of the population from attending the games in person. And so that that old, you know, uh, you know, the classic scene of, you know, the dad taking, uh, you know, his 10 year old to, to his first ball game becomes increasingly inaccessible for for a great number of American families, you know, you know, across the different regions of the United States. And then there are the politics of, of ownership as, as well. I know that the players have, have a wide range of viewpoints and I, I like it on principle when they articulate those viewpoints, even when, when those viewpoints are unpopular, it makes sports more interesting. And it, 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 I think it adds to, you know the 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 paradigm of of sports as as being uh you know a, 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 an elemental aspect of of the society in which it occurs but the the owners you know a, a lot of them are are out and out explicit zionists which really runs counter to to you know everything that that I want to do politically in this world I I come from a family of of Palestinians who who was displaced in 1948 i get extremely fr- flustered and upset when i i see a sports team professional sports team owners doing uh junkets to uh israel taking their players there uh donating to to some of the most reactionary organizations on the planet not just around um, Israel, but but on on a bunch of issues as well. You know, we're dealing with a class of of billionaires and all of the bad politics that inherently come along with that. Even some of the the you know the more I guess uh, media friendly or more more cuddly <laughs> um, owners out there, they're still billionaires, and so they're they're you know or or multimillionaires at the very least, and so they're necessarily going to have awful politics and they're going to use the money they make from us the fans right to finance and partake of all kinds of reactionary shit and there's no way of getting around it as a consumer and i know that you know in the political spaces i i exist in you know on social media people will will choose whom to root for in let's say the nba finals based on on which owner is worse <laughs> you know or or which owner let's say is is less objectionable and you know they all to some degree uh fundamentally objectionable and and i have problems with that and 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 i'm trying i'm constantly trying to think of ways to be a fan without participating too explicitly in an entire political structure that runs counter to my beliefs of how a, a functional society should operate and you know for me it's 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 a matter of of getting rid of of this this ownership model and the very idea of of owning a team 
is stupid on its face. You know, when, when you sort of step back and, mm-hmm. and just think about it for a second, you know, one one dude has the capital, right, to to own what is essentially a concept, right? You know, and and mm-hmm. so the, the 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 ownership model is is deeply problematic. The 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 owner or the the investors of the team are going to get uh, you know forty nine fifty fifty one percent of the revenue, and the rest of it is going to be split among all of the rest of the employees. And that's a fundamentally unjust financial and and economic situation. I guess the Green Bay Packers are are, are you know the the easiest team to root for in that regard it's it's i guess um it's it's owned by the uh the, the city of green bay as i understand it but i i believe that that finding ways or thinking through ways to to change the the ownership model and creating instead a municipal model of of ownership among the citizens where where the facilities are, are owned by by the municipalities by the population by the people Right or in some degree, if it's it's workable by the players themselves, but there there needs to be mm-hmm. collective ownership, and the fact that there's not, the fact that there's private ownership, makes it extremely difficult for me sometimes to move past the action itself and and enjoy it in the way maybe that 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 sports are best enjoyed. Yeah, I mean there are, there are several other models that uh, that are rife with problems as well like in in world football they there are several major major teams like Bayern Munich who are collectively owned and yeah I again not without problems in those situations uh as well so I I I like how you you've brought that up and I I particularly enjoyed um that I'm going to quote you Stephen for just a second if you're not conflicted you're not doing any thinking and I think that's that's a, a really uh, a great quote and, and kind of sums up probably what we're all um, dealing with and what we've been grappling with. And, and just to go uh, just very briefly back to a previous point about how the the broader labor movement within sport is not disconnected from the labor movement that exists beyond sport. And we've all talked about this in, in um, different ways. And I think that we, and I, I know, not, I don't think any of you would disagree with this, that we should be thinking that our fandom may also, or is also part of that broader movement and that broader labor movement that we're seeing um, around us everywhere. And one of the reasons I'm, I'm really thinking of, uh, about this is that I think we have to rethink our relationship to athletics and athletes through our fandom because in some ways the relationships between fans and athletes are becoming increasingly more toxic given things like the ubiquity of fantasy sport and gambling which are fundamentally processes of dehumanizing athletes and creating distance between the fan and the athlete quite literally dehumanizing these people so on in that context, it would also seem that like we, if we want to have concern for the working conditions and well-being of athletes, there's a political imperative for solidarity between athletes and fans, even though it's becoming increasingly more difficult. My question for all of you is, is such solidarity even possible? 
or is it antithetical to the very structure of contemporary capitalist high-performance spectator sport? And again, we'll start with Amanda. Um, I think it's partially possible. I'm not sure it's fully possible, mm. especially in the case of college football, because um, players uh, do not have union rights or collective bargaining rights. Um, but you know, I, I believe very, very strongly in um, in unions. I was one of the organizers at the for the new union at my workplace. I think it is my role as a fan, first and foremost, to stand in solidarity with um, athletic workers uh, because they are the people who create the thing that gives me joy. It's not the owners. It's not the coaches. It's not, you know, the boosters. It's not whoever else. It is uh, fundamentally, if there's no players, there's uh, none of this for us. Um, this thing uh, that we care about so much, that I care about so much, evaporates um, because, you know, the Lord knows the University of Georgia Athletic Department administration is not going to get out there and field a team. I don't think they'd be very good on in, in the trenches on the lines. Um, <laughs> so, it, you know, I think it's first and foremost recognizing who whose labor creates the thing that you enjoy. Um, and I think that in in pro sports and in college sports, there is um, this push. Um, and I think it's a lot. A lot of it is done um purposefully uh by by uh corporate media by um pr to sort of deify um coaches to uh to deify ownership uh this happens especially in the NFL I think which is uh and the NFL is sort of bizarre to me because I grew up is you know the Atlanta NFL team is woeful um and uh it is the second most popular football team in the state by a pretty large margin um and uh, in this sort of like move to try and paint um, these people as as Svengali's or as providers of entertainment for the rest of us is just um, disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, it, I find it absolutely revolting. And so I, I think that my job as as a fan is to stay. Uh, uh, to keep in mind, first and foremost, that it is the players who make any of this possible. Um, and second of all, to uh, try to be responsive to uh, their needs and their working conditions and try to um, use whatever um, leverage or power I have as a fan, as somebody with a media profile to um, argue on their behalf, to lobby on their behalf. Um, and, uh, and I think that, and I think this is intimated in, in perhaps one of the one of the questions um that we're gonna get but i i think that um that's a big reason that i don't disengage mm -hmm. with sports like there are emotional familial reasons of course but i also think that um that my dis if i just decided not to pay attention to georgia football anymore uh how does that help the players mm -hmm. um I think that bearing witness to to what they do and the harm that they're caused um, by these systems and by the sport is um, the least I can do as a fan. And then, um, you know, uh, should there be any strikes, should there be any boycotts, should there anything like that? You know, if there if there is a signal from players that they need something from fans, I think it is first and foremost my job to be responsive to that. 
Absolutely. And, and obviously, huge kudos to you all for, for unionizing and, and your work and doing that. That's amazing. But but I think you bring up a really excellent point this, that other people have brought up on the show before, that if we were to remove ourselves, like, how does that help athletes? And sort of like, who is going to fill that hole? And like, we know who's going to fill that, right? And that is probably not going to go well for athletes. Um, yeah, so so Kevin, what are your thoughts on this question? Yeah, it's... I do think that the type of solidarity that we're thinking about and talking about is possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and as a historian, mm-hmm. you know, so I'll say two things just from my own proclivities that, that come from my discipline. One, I'm going to recommend a book because I'm contractually obligated to talk about books in every setting that I have. <laughs> but uh, Craig Calcaterra, who's a baseball writer and who, who writes a Substack newsletter called Cup of Coffee, which if you're a baseball fan, I cannot recommend enough, um, has a book out through Belt Publishers called Rethinking Fandom, um, which talks a lot in really smart and interesting and very well-written ways about a lot of the things that we're talking about here. Uh, and I have found that book to be one of the best reads and most, most engaging and challenging reads I've had in a long time. So I mm-hmm. highly recommend Craig's book, Rethinking Fandom. Um, and I think it's one that would resonate with folks here in the space and then those listening to this later. Um, but secondly, so I'm my main sport, if you will, is baseball. And one thing that I noticed in the, in the recent lockout was a real shift away from the sort of, oh, the players are entitled and they get paid a lot of money to play baseball and can't they just get this fucking thing over with so we can all watch sports again. Like that has been every baseball work stoppage that I can remember in my lifetime. But this time, what was interesting is you would have the usual suspects in the baseball media basically transcribing quote unquote leaks from ownership, like, oh, the players are have these exorbitant demands and the owners are just taking a bath and they're losing money owning these teams. And a few people would would, you know, the the usual suspects, the Bob Nightingales of the world, right, would throw this out there and just the the chorus of scorn and derision that mm-hmm. met those things in this last lockout was awesome because it was finally like the fever has has broken mm-hmm. right like a lot of fans realize like wait a minute you know yes it may be millionaires versus billionaires but you know the owners are fleecing municipalities mm-hmm. you know they see stadium deals as basically you know their money's coming from real estate you know, they're saying that they're going broke. You know, the owner of the Cubs said they lost money in, quote, biblical proportions. At the very same time, they're putting together a bid to buy an English Premier League soccer team. And in that bid, they're saying that their franchise, the Cubs, has done really well. And that's going to form part of their collateral, right? So, you know, all this stuff has been obvious to, to those of us who've been paying attention. But the way in which it became kind of the common denominator of, our focus on the lockout and, you know, the rooting interest, if you will, of fans was very much pro player and anti owner this time. Not, you know, obviously not universally, but to a degree that I didn't think we would ever see given the power of the narrative uh, in this country about, you know, the rich entrepreneur being, you know, the, the paragon of moral virtue, you know? And so what that, what that illustrates to me is even in a sport that is such tradition bound, hide bound, if you will, like baseball, I saw that as a seismic shift. Uh, and I see, and I see a continuing critique of ownership and, and the ways in which owners are trying to manipulate municipalities and manipulate things like player service time and all of that. 
I see that continuing in ways that I did, would not have expected before. Uh, and so I, I see it as, you know, an important, even if it's a subtle shift, I think it's a powerful shift. And I do think that that, should we not fumble the moment and should enough fans, you know, see the avenues for solidarity and what that means for all of us as a society, not just as fans or, you know, adherence to a particular sport. I do see this as a moment of possibility and perhaps that sounds naive or Pollyanna, uh, but I do think it's worthwhile to traffic and hope. Uh, when there's a basis to do so. And I see this as one of those times for for those of us who are fans with a capital F, right? That there are ways uh, that we can forge solidarity and that we can use the example of, let's say, pro-athlete unions to rethink our approach to fandom and our tools and approaches to solidarity in the wider culture. This is one of those moments, I think, where sports can be a force that you know, on the leading edge of social change, as it has done before in this country. And we probably shouldn't lose sight of that. I see that type of opportunity existing here today in a much more complex and intertwined with capitalism way, perhaps, but, but still in a, in a meaningful and genuine way that might help us really put some concreteness behind a workable idea of solidarity that too often exists only in some sort of abstract, gauzy, way and not anything meaningful to folks. Maybe sports fandom and maybe athletes, you know, can offer us a way to make those things tangible in ways that we're not able to do otherwise. You know, I think I think you raised such an important point and we've seen similar kind of pushes or kind of similar moments of solidarity between with fans supporting athletes. Um I'm thinking of um like the Portland soccer team, I cannot remember the their mascot, but like even this week, um, Jules Boykoff, who is a huge um, uh, sport activist and a huge fan of the show, he posted a video of fans, mainly male fans, who were chanting during the game about the owners and the coaches not taking allegations of abuse seriously. Um, similarly, we had uh, Kira McCormick, who was a former professional soccer player, who um, really helped she worked with um the Vancouver Whitecaps the women the, the fans of the women's soccer team in Vancouver similarly do like they they left during halftime during a game and game and sort of similar activism and protest to support athletes in their allegations of abuse and um all this awful stuff against the coaching and against management right so we're kind of seeing these moments we obviously need to see more but you're right in that they provide really excellent examples of what fan solidarity and support can actually look like. Um, so I'm so glad that you brought that up. Um, yeah, I think too, just to follow up yeah, with you, excuse yeah. me for jumping back in again, but I think you hit it exactly right, Joanna, is, you know, we know collectively we, that we need to imagine better, mm -hmm. to imagine different, to imagine better. But the barrier to that is, well, what does that look right. like? Right. Like, you know, what does it look like to make imagination tangible? We need examples. Mm -hmm. We need templates. We need models. Right. Uh, and I do think that given the position of sports and given the ways in which fandom works, as, as we've all been sort of talking about for the past while, that sports is uniquely leveraged to offer us, you know, a model for imagining differently and imagining better. And I think that that you know, that is a really powerful thing that we shouldn't lose sight of, you know, as we talk about why are we still fans, given 
given everything around it because and I think that's the essence of it, right? Because there is that sense of possibility and transcendence that comes along with it that we don't find very often in other places. Yeah. And even just another example, and Steve, I promise I'll, I'll toss it to you in a second, um, is within gymnastics. And we've talked about this a lot on the show, but the support of gymnastics fans for all the gymnasts who have been victimized by just horrific sexual abuse, but that also physical and mental and emotional abuse that's been going on for decades. Similarly, they've done a lot of work to really try to hold um, coaches, but also sport administrators to the fire and say, like, why are you not treating gymnasts better? I mean, when the UCLA women's gymnastics team, the racism um, scandal broke in January and the, the athletes started posting on Twitter and asking their athletic director, like, why have you not answered my emails about these issues of racism? And that's when the story kind of really broke public. And I follow a lot of gymnastics fans and they were like, holy shit. And they were just tweeting constantly, constantly like posting and sending emails and sending letters. Right. So it, it again, I think we, we kind of need a model or maybe many different models, right. Of sort of how this can look like, but you're right. And that it, it's a really important moment to look at. And I think comparing across time and space, what that can look like can hopefully kind of inspire others and keep some of that momentum going. Um, yeah. So, so Steve, uh, what are your thoughts on this conversation? No, 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 no worries. You all already covered everything that I could have possibly said. Um, excellent. So we've kept you for over an hour and 40 minutes at this point. So the last question that we'll wrap up with um, is, and I'm really continu continuing what we were just talking about, is that in an ideal world where um, our society or societies are no longer fundamentally shaped by racial capitalism and heteropatriarchy, what can sport look like? And we'll start with you, Amanda. I, I have to say, this is the question that I do not have a good answer for, I think. Um, it, is, it is hard to imagine what sport looks like um, without the, these systems through, through which and under which we understand and experience it. Um, but I, I think um, what's valuable to me about about sports and about fandom is um is the sense of community we talked about in um in in the top of the show the sense of uh belonging and understanding with other people who i might not necessarily know and might not necessarily see eye to eye with on many other things um the sense of uh intimacy it gives me with people in my life um who i uh experience these things with um and I, I think that it should still be possible to have those things through sports um, without um, without undue harm to workers, without um, the sort of uh, retrograde values of, uh, you know, tradition and masculinity um, that in the specific type of masculinity that that sports tends to um, endorse. Uh, and reify um and and i think that there are just like there are healthier ways to be that can be instead um uh reflected through reflected through sports there are um you know healthy masculinities there are 
healthy ways to to be um, part of, parts of communities, uh, to think about our emotions, to explore them in ways that are not um, high stakes for us. And and I would hope that um, under different systems and in a different time, it is possible to still do that with sports. Excellent. And Kevin. Yeah, for someone who just said we need examples of how to imagine differently and imagine better, I'm having a lot of trouble doing that for this question, to be honest, um, because we're so deeply rooted in, in our moment and all of the things that, that accompany that. But I do think, you know, at their best, you know, what sports can do is to help us and 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 you know to see what it looks like to transcend limits right what does it look like to do that what does it look like for someone to actually accomplish those things to you know transcend the limits of a normal skill level at something you know to transcend physical limits and to 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 push into you know to use the cliche that next level right that and we get to experience that at least vicariously and so that's the kind of fandom that isn't toxic, right? That's the kind of fandom where we where we marvel at the ways in which athletes are able to do these things that that are not able to be done by a lot of us, and to at least vicariously share in that sense of joy and accomplishment, and to build community around it. And so maybe that's the key to thinking about you know what sports looks like you know in a in a context that isn't riven with all the inequities and violence and injustices that we have it seems to me if we look at sports historically that it's a sort of dialectical process right that sports both reflect but also challenge uh our socio-political norms and so you know what does it look like if that second part is the one that's accentuated what does it look like when sports offer a model as opposed to just the sort of reflection, you know, the straight reflection of, of the negative elements that we have, right? That, you know, we see the the profound emphasis right now on sports gambling, which to me is a classic sign of sort of, you know, the larger neoliberal context in which we find ourselves. Like, but what if it looked like, you know, what what would it look like if sports transcended and, and pushed back against the dehumanization that that involves? What does it look like when, you know, labor is emancipated within sport, for example? So, you know, again, the sense of possibilities, you know, and we've seen sports do that in ways, in powerful ways before. Uh, so maybe sports and fandom and the, and the elements of community and the emotional sense, not just the intellectual sense that fandom offers are, are the ways in which that occurs. I, something that Kevin m mentioned that like knocked loose something for me, sorry to interject, is that um, I am really curious what it would mean to, um, to celebrate sort of the diversity of human ability. In people who can do things that are just astonishing and that that exist sort of at the at the far end of um, of our understanding of, of human ability without then pushing people who have those um, sort of natural talents to um, to maximize them in ways that are harmful um, in, in ways that don't the in ways that dehumanize them um, like how do we how do we get to a healthier understanding of like athletic achievement um in in ways that 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 don't push us and to um to denigrate athletes who aren't willing to sacrifice their bodies for us um is it possible to do that um or does celebrating those extremes automatically 
apply pressure to people that's going to be harmful i don't know but i'm interested to see because one of the big parts of sports to me is just that you know some of these some of these people the men and women who do this are just transcendent in their ability in in their demonstration of what um what human bodies and human minds can do and and i think that that is something that makes sports really emotional but how do we how do we safeguard them um while still celebrating that i don't know if it's possible Steve, how might you answer this question? Well, um, really, rather in the way that that Kevin answered it, he he did it much more eloquently than I I, I could even think of doing. So maybe I'll I'll try to add a small bit, you know, on onto the comments that have already been raised, but. It has change ha- has to happen at a societal level. So the protests around pre- police brutality, um, racial and economic injustice, um, you know, uh, ongoing settler colonization, corporate exploitation of indigenous land, all the way from North and South America to to Palestine and Kashmir, you know, all all of these things are aspects of are are, are are central to you know creating a different and a better world. And sports can participate in that process, and sports can also be affected by the changes that come about at a, a broader societal and political level. I think key to that, and this is really non-specific advice, but it's 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 something that is deeply important for anybody who is serious about change. That we cannot let the ruling class define for us what is possible or impossible. I don't think that that anything that we can imagine is impossible. If it were impossible, we wouldn't be able to imagine it in the first place. And so we have to cultivate our imagination and use that as a baseline for the type of change that we want to see inside and beyond sports. So, you know, will we always succeed? Will we get everything we want? No, of course not. Maybe one day we will. But we start with the optimal outcome as our baseline and don't let, you know, agents of the ruling class define notions of pragmatism and possibility for us, that we work for the greatest possible good. And if we come up short of, of, of you know, our, 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 our main aspiration, then you know, we regroup, we reorganize, and we go back to it. So, again, sports can be a, a terrific vehicle for for bringing people into organizing spaces, for creating connections where they might otherwise be difficult to foster. But sports also won't change unless the the social conditions in which sports exist change. Alongside them, and so I think that that's something to keep in mind. The 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 broader context of of 
where sports take place, how they function economically, you know, where they happen, um, who is invested in them, um, and and you know, and 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 so forth. I guess what I'm trying to say is that we we, we need to think of of sports, you know, to uh, a, a certain degree as um, a, a reflection of society. You change one, you change the other. Absolutely. And I, and I think part of the, I mean, part of it, it's right, as you all have kind of pointed out, it's really hard. It is really hard to imagine something else, especially when these systems are firmly rooted. Um, and I don't just say this to like plug my work, although I will, um, is right. Is that like, it, I think if we look at other possible sports systems, this, systems that have existed elsewhere in the world, right, we can look at elements that uh, as, as kind of points of inspiration that could be used, right? So like I look at Socialist Hungary from 19, from the 1960s to the 1980s, there it is a profoundly imperfect system and there still is like violence and doping, although not state led to the extent that there was in East Germany, but there still is like overt politicization. But the state still believed that they needed to pay athletes and pay athletes pretty well. They still need to provide them with the healthcare, right? There were still some things that were really awful about the system. So if we were to reimagine and maybe remove some of those really awful elements, right? Remove this kind of top-down state enforced politicization, but then still like pay athletes, right? Kind of centered around athletes as well as, you know, fans, but also climate needs, right? I mean, I think, I think. It's about kind of picking certain elements that maybe have worked well in the past and combine them with what we want to see. But I think that can be hopefully some inspiration of, of kind of where to go from here. Um, I think we are going to end there. We have kept you so, so long, almost two hours at this point. Thank you all. This was such a, an amazing and incredible conversation. Thank you all for your time and your generosity, your expertise. This was really fantastic. And um, yeah, just thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thanks for having us. And it was a pleasure to be with you, Steve and Amanda. Yes. Um, such a pleasure. Thank you for having us.